He's only been at his craft a few years, but Urbana attorney Evan Bruno is making his mark among a younger generation of up-and-coming criminal defense attorneys. I'm Mary Shank, and this week on Legally Speaking, Bruno talks about his firm's brief role in the two-year-old federal case against Brent Christensen for kidnapping and murder, as well as a few other observations of the justice system. We'll be back after this. Hey, Jim Rosso, News Gazette Media Vice President, reminding you that we have a ton of podcasts available at newsgazette.com every day of the week. From Dave Gentry's Morning Show to Scott Beatty's News Hour to Brian Barnhart's Penny for Your Thoughts. Head to our website, newsgazette.com, and search for podcasts. My guest today is Evan Bruno, an Urbana attorney in a robust criminal defense practice with his dad, Tom, and his older brother, Tony. And Evan also happens to be president of the Champaign County Criminal Defense Association. Did I get that title right? Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. Forgive me. I have the important task of sending out the monthly email about our lunch. (laughs) Well, that is important. That is important. Do you have to also secure the place where you will hold the meeting? (laughs) That's that's been long accomplished. We're at Broadway Food Hall, first Tuesday of every month, (laughs) right after the tornado sirens are tested. Very good. Evan's been an attorney for a mere seven years, and um, I've been a colleague of and friends with your dad for almost 40 years, and for many years I was on your parents' Christmas card list, so um, it's been a pleasure watching you and your brother and your sister grow up, and when I see you and Tony at work, it gives me great hope for a new generation of lawyers. So anyway, welcome to Legally Speaking. Thank you. Which is, I realized, a term I think I might have stolen from your father back in the days when he had a little cable program where he talked about legal issues. Legalese. (laughs) Legalese. Okay, maybe I didn't steal it. There might be one or two VHS tapes of that still (laughs) on my parents' (laughs) shelf. Um, Let's dive right in and talk about the case that is on the minds of a whole lot of people in this community and this portion of Illinois, and that's the Brent Christensen trial. He's accused of the murder and kidnapping two years ago of visiting scholar Ying Ying Zhang. Um, your firm had a small but very important role in this case at its inception. How about you explain for our listeners who may have forgotten what you did, what, what that role was? First, there's because this is still an ongoing trial. As of today, anyway, when we're recording. <laughs> correct. There are some things I can't talk about, of course. Uh, but what's been publicly reported and been public knowledge for almost two years now is that we were initially hired to handle this case, beginning with the arrest in the summer of 2017. After a few months of the case percolating through the federal court and us handling the case, it was announced formally through uh, then Attorney General Jeff Jeff Sessions that this would be a case in which the government sought the death penalty. The federal government sought the death penalty in a uh, district, federal district that was located in Illinois. Of course, the federal death penalty applies to all federal territories. Right. Uh, We um, reached a point where we were uh, the, the... task of defending a death penalty case in federal court was not through private counsel was not something that the client could uh, afford uh, 
financially. That's not uh, atypical uh, when a case changes in nature Mm -hmm. uh, and and the defendant has gone from a serious case to a to the most serious case that you can find anywhere in uh, in the legal system and the uh, financial means for the client are not available to have private counsel handle that case so we found ourselves in that position judge bruce who was then sitting in the Central District, relieved us of the case and appointed the public defender who has handled the case since 2017 on the on the government dime. Mm-hmm. That was a uh, it was a switch of attorneys through financial necessity. Right. Well, and I think our listeners need to understand that you are a three person firm, and you have a. I use the word robust. You have lots of clients, don't do you not? In other criminal cases, we have uh, all three of the attorneys at our firm handle multiple clients at any given time, from really serious felony cases in which prison time is mm-hmm. at least uh, on the table, if not likely, all the way down to uh, misdemeanor offenses like DUIs and shoplifting and that kind of thing. Our firm doesn't specialize in the high volume, many clients, assembly line style practice. We take on cases that we know we will be able to dedicate the full amount of resources necessary to get the best result for our clients. We don't take on uh, cases in which uh, the client is going to be um, expecting small effort and kind of just run-of-the-mill pushing pushing sure. the case through. We, when we take on a case, our clients know that they're hiring us to do a fully thorough bang-up job on a case and make sure that no stone is left unturned. So when we have someone who has a case that's going to become a federal death penalty case, for example, in this case, uh, the the amount of work and effort involved corresponds with the demands on our client to be able to pay for that. That's with any case. That's with any private attorney anywhere. Uh, our firm doesn't take on cases that uh, you know are going to be so complex and involved that uh, the attorney's not, the, the client's not going to be able to pay for it. Sure. At any rate, we all know that a death penalty case, even back in the days when Illinois had the death penalty, is puts the workload at an incredibly different level than even just a, just a murder case. I don't mean to sound like I'm minimizing. Right. And I thought it was somebody made the point to me recently, like even the feds at the local level, they don't really have any say in whether this is a death penalty case or not. Do they? I mean, this is pretty much all these decisions are made out in D.C., aren't they? To an extent, the local prosecutors are the ones who, of course, are dealing with with the investigators, dealing with the detectives and the agents who are working the case. Everything goes through the local prosecutors. 
the ultimate decision, the thumbs up or thumbs down decision mm -hmm. happens in Washington, D.C. But it, yeah. it's, it's not to say that uh, Jeff Sessions was here in Champaign County talking with <laughs> right. investigators or investing the, investigating the case. Uh, there is a communication that happens between the local prosecutors and Washington, D.C. That's very important for the people in Washington to be able to make the decision of what's going to happen in the case. Maybe you can't answer this question, but do you have some notion why you think this was a death penalty case? I mean, there are horrendous murders done day in and day out in this state and others that... I don't have any additional information than you have or than your reading public has. I know that federal death penalty cases are rare. Mm -hmm. I believe at last count I mean, there were 62 federal inmates on death row, and the last execution took place in 20, or in 2003. Mm -hmm. So, And before I mean, that, there have been only three federal executions since 1988. When I'm thinking of Timothy McVeigh, you he know, the Oklahoma the City bombing. I mean, there there's a household name. Uh, Brent Christensen, for all his puffery, is not a household name everywhere in this nation. Um, I'm always I'm always amazed at the cases that captivate the public attention. Um, like I said, I this is as uh, horrendous as they get. If indeed all these details that he's provided the authorities are accurate, um, you know. But bad things happen all the time, and. You know, I might be the only one in the courtroom. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Tell me, what what do you think about the defense strategy of just starting out their case with, our guy did it? I'll start off by saying that Elizabeth, Elizabeth Pollack and George Tessif are total all-stars. I think there's few attorneys in central Illinois that are more qualified to handle a case like this than Liz Pollack. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, I wasn't there for the strategy decision. I'm not going to comment on the strategy decision in terms of why it was made or why it wasn't made. I do know that just as a matter of law, defense is not entitled to concede a client's guilt if the client does not want them to concede his guilt. I'm sure everyone in the courtroom from the government to the defense attorneys to the judge are aware of that law which is actually recent it's a recent supreme court case from 2018 called louisiana versus mccoy that basically says among the things that a defendant has total say over is whether his attorneys concede guilt or not concede guilt okay so as a legal principle just as an objective outside observer i know that I assume that unless everyone in Peoria forgot about that important new Supreme Court decision, <laughs> that this was a strategy that was at least um, approved by by the defendant. So why not just plead guilty from the get-go? Again, I, I don't exactly know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to speculate on on what was going on behind the scenes, you know, obviously I, I, I can't comment on anything that hasn't been reported publicly. Uh, I know that plea negotiations are kept secret unless they re result in a plea. That's true in Illinois. That's true in the federal system. I don't 
know if any plea negotiations took place. I just, I just simply do not know that. That is one one thing that crosses my mind in terms of trying to figure out uh, the strategy. And and frankly, I'm I'm as I'm learning <laughs> most of this along with everyone else in your readers readership and your listening audience. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I've seen so far that was not known before we uh, were uh, before we uh, withdrew from the case. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is is new to me as well, and I'm kind of with everyone else, just observing and you know, trying to figure out uh, where this case is going. Again, I got to come back to the fact that if I were accused of any offense in the federal court, I wouldn't. There wouldn't be anyone who I'd rather have defending me than Elizabeth Pollack. Mm-hmm. And I know George Tessif is as experienced as they come. And I, I trust that they have a sound, carefully considered strategy for what they're doing. Well, clearly, they're trying to um, mitigate what he did by, you know, mounting this whole mental... Uh, deficiency defense I mean you know they want to say nobody in their right mind would act this way <laughs> I assume <laughs> I guess I mean that's what that's that that's uh, a fair interpretation of what we're seeing happen in the courthouse in Peoria uh, certainly it was known before opening statements that if there is a guilty verdict, there will be a sentencing phase mm-hmm. where the same jury decides what the penalty should be, whether it should be life imprisonment or the death penalty. Perhaps uh, the guilt phase allows the defense to explore areas that may not have been easy as easy to explore during the sentencing phase. Mm-hmm. Again, that's that's a point of strategy that I'm I have no insider knowledge on more any more than than you might. You've been watching court proceedings for mm-hmm. decades, and um, f- fortunately, uh, the system is set up to where a lot of those decisions happen in confidence behind closed doors. Perhaps even in the judges' chambers, and mm-hmm. we know that in this case there have been dozens of important decisions made behind closed doors in camera, meaning right. in the judges' chambers where right. the public and the jury are not there. That's a good thing because there are a lot of important decisions that can't be made in public or in front of the jury in order to have a fair proceeding. So. When it's all said and done, maybe we'll have a better idea of mm-hmm. a, a, a more clear picture of this trial, and it might, it will, I'm sure, be more clear to everyone who's observing why everything has unfolded the way it did. But like, again, it, one of the things that people need to keep in mind is that these attorneys, these defense attorneys, and the and the government prosecutors are all uh, absolute professionals and stars at what they do, and they they don't uh, make decisions like this willy-nilly. Sure. 
I call them the the scary smart category. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's true. You have to have so many balls in the air at the same time, and uh, you know, I keep I, coming back in my own mind the reason that your firm would have wanted out. I mean, you they would they've had to give their attention to pretty much only this case for a long time, even though they uh, they have a, I know Liz has other cases that are having to be continued and take a back seat. I can't imagine those other clients are really thrilled about that, but they must understand that a death penalty case, given the ultimate penalty, requires that level of attention. Well, we uh, it's been no secret ever in this case that if it goes to a federal death penalty case, that it turns into a different animal. I think we said that mm-hmm. to Judge Bruce in open court at our last hearing that it's it's apples and oranges to talk about a federal criminal case versus a federal death penalty case. Sure. And, uh, you know, although we were prepared to handle it, it wasn't the kind of thing that a private law firm gets involved with without consideration for the client's ability to afford that level of defense. Sure. Let's move on to some other areas of the criminal justice arena that... Please. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. That, it's uh, only been two years of the, having people ask me about this, but uh, now that the trial has right. started off the way it did, I feel like it's... Um, there are not many, not many hidden... Um, uh, no, no reason for us to act like this is something that we can't at least... Right. Listen to people talk about and maybe right. respond with some comments. Well, and it has been interesting to see how it's unfolded. And quite frankly, I've been surprised at the level of uh, evidence and the, the the look we've gotten. I mean, the feds have been really good about, uh, like, all the the exhibits in the trial have been put out there for public consumption. You don't see that in a state court trial. I don't get to tote back pictures of the murder weapon or whatever when I'm covering a state case. So at any rate, um, again, moving along. So we were, I was talking to you earlier about, um, oh, bail reform was a popular topic a couple of years ago. Um, um, The legislature, you know, wants to to move in the arena of being a little more pro-defendant, I believe. Um, locally, I go to arraignment court several times a month. seems to me that judges are setting bonds fairly reasonably uh, based on prior convictions and what they're hearing about the allegations of a crime. Do you agree in general as a defense attorney? Um, I think we have really good judges in Champaign County. I think they make fair decisions for the most part, including in, in bail decisions. I, I do acknowledge that the criminal justice system, or should I say the laws that govern the criminal justice system, are kind of a, a one-way ratchet because it will never, hopefully this changes in my lifetime, or at least this becomes a little bit more reasonable in my lifetime, but it will always be the popular political stance for a lawmaker to present himself or herself as tough on crime. Right. That's one of, I'd say, the top five uh, rallying cries for anyone who wants to get elected to public office to make laws in Illinois or any other state or federally. What that means, though, is if 
if there's some unreasonable condition of uh, criminal law that maybe is unfair to defendants mm -hmm. and some state representative in Springfield or state senator proposes a bill to pull back that law or to make it a little bit more fair to the defendant the opponent of that person at the next election cycle will put out mm -hmm. flyers uh, political ads mailings what have you saying legislature legislator X XYZ voted to uh, make it easier for, for example, domestic abusers to access their victims to hurt them again. Sure. You know, there's no there's no rules that says that they can't paint their opponent's action as simply a handout to criminals. Right. That's a problem. What is what it has resulted in is years and years of some legislate, legislator, state representative or senator proposing a bill that says, for example, um, let's require that if a person on bond, so someone's arrested for an offense, uh -huh. if that person wants to leave the state before the case is over, they have to get permission from the court. They can't leave the state while they're on bond without permission from the court. That comes up for a vote, and a vote against that is basically going to be treated in the, in the, from the public's eyes, either by their opponent or by the media perhaps, as a vote against that bill is a vote for criminals. So that happens over years and years, and eventually mm -hmm. this one-way ratchet keeps ratcheting <laughs> up and making it more and more severe. And so we're stuck in a position where, for example, if someone's arrested for a DUI, first-time DUI, no matter who they are, between the time of their arrest and the time that their case is over, mm -hmm. they're not allowed to leave the state without permission from the court. Which means they got to pay you to prepare a motion to go stand before the judge. Which means they have to prepare, <laughs> have their lawyer prepare a motion and ask <sighs> the judge to approve it. And, and that's the default. This is a statewide law. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's just one example of uh, a rule that really doesn't serve any purpose. And the, reason, and, and, and the reason why it doesn't serve any purpose is because if you have a, someone who's charged with a DUI and they want to walk away from their family and their home mm -hmm. and their kids to escape this DUI case, to flee to Mexico and you know, become a fisherman and live on the beach because they just can't deal with this DUI case, mm -hmm. they, they won't do that, of course, because the condition of their bond prohibits them from leaving the state. Well, of course that doesn't make any sense. If someone wants to run away from a case and flee the jurisdiction and never come back, they're going to do it regardless of whether their bond prohibits them from doing it. Not leaving the state is kind of something that was relevant maybe when Abraham Lincoln was riding around on the back of a horse <laughs> and leaving the state was like a big deal and you, you, it meant that you were outside mm -hmm. of this jurisdiction and no one could find you. But nowadays we have people who need to go to work in St. Louis for a conference and sure. they have to, you know, those kind of things. I, I'm okay with the judge if he has a reason, a reason to think that someone needs to be kept in the state without, you know, unless they have permission. Well, they could do that in any case, right. couldn't they? A judge can impose a specific condition that's applicable 
as opposed to, I, I guess you're just saying, let's do away with these blanket things, the one-way right. ratchets that have... Well, well, in Illinois, it is a necessary condition as a default. The judge doesn't make that decision. Right. In Illinois, right. the bond law says if you're, if you're placed on bond, you shall not leave the state without permission from the court. So the judge doesn't even impose that. It's just a statewide law. And right. that's just one example of, of a condition that is, in the year 2019, it does not operate to prevent people from fleeing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't operate to make people safe. It simply is a form of punishment before before the case is before over. Before conviction. What are some other conditions that get under your skin? <laughs> there are conditions... Uh, Generally speaking, or actions. Gen generally speaking, one of the things that I've, I've written about this before and advocated that this needs to be changed is in most courts in central Illinois that I've been in, if there's someone who is unable to post bond, mm -hmm. no matter what the offense is for, say it's shoplifting, first time offender, poor person, maybe a homeless person is accused of shoplifting, and they have a $200 bond. It costs them 200 bucks to get out. If they can't post that, they have to remain in custody and say they have a pretrial date scheduled. Say there's another person who's accused of some violent offense, aggravated battery with a firearm, mm -hmm. but they have 1000 bucks they can post to get out, or 5000 If those two people have the same pretrial, pretrial hearing, which is basically a status hearing, the person accused of aggravated battery with a firearm shows up in court, walks through, walks through the main courtroom door wearing khakis and slacks, holding his files and his pen or whatever. The person accused of shoplifting, who can't post a $200 bond, walks into the courtroom through the side door with shackles on his or her legs with a tight Velcro strap around their belly with their hands and handcuffs and the handcuffs are actually attached to the, right. the belly strap so right. they can't you know even lift their hand up to the table to write something down right. on a piece of paper that's not sensical that makes the person who simply cannot post the $200 appear in this public courtroom to the public to everyone else and to themselves like a dangerous bad guy, right. while the guy who maybe did something much worse just because he had some money laying around to post bond gets to walk in with khakis on and his dress shoes and um, gets to talk with his lawyer in the hallway and gets to meet with his lawyer at the office. But I get it. It's not a question of danger. It's just how we do it. And um, unfortunately, just how we do it, it makes a big difference. And is, is given a lot of credit where maybe it should be, maybe we should be more considerate so on a case-by-case -case basis. Why don't you go to our new sheriff and say, hey, change this? <laughs> I mean, because generally the answer would be these are questions of safety, it's, and they'll give you some response like, oh, it's for the safety of the defendant as well. And <laughs> Is that your sheriff's voice? <laughs> yeah. I, these are things, I, these are opinions of mine that I've made known. Sure. And I think I might have, I've, I've talked with our, new sheriff about several issues this might mm -hmm. have been one of them i'm not sure I, I i won't i won't say i've talked to him about this specifically right. uh, i do think it's important to engage with all the people involved in the criminal justice system and not in some public 
forum where everyone's in their, uh, you know, campaign mode or, sure. or, you know, pulling punches mode. But I think it's important to talk to people one-on-one, face-to-face, where maybe there are some swear words included in the conversation. Maybe we <laughs> talk about uh, some personal experiences with specific clients that otherwise wouldn't be appropriate for a public setting. I think it's important for people to talk about this stuff with their guard down and not being, uh, not feeling like they're going to be necessarily held to certain things they say. We have a problem, I think, broadly speaking, in government, I'd say, the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. included, of everything's arranged every everything is like a a press conference or everything is a a forum a candidate forum there's not enough uh talk over a beer you know or talk over a hamburger at lunch of how to how to get the problem fixed this is one of the things i said gives me hope about your generation is it's time to question some of the things that are done just because that's the way they've always been done it's the strongest reason why anything's done, because that's the way it's that's always been done. That's the way it's done. always been done. I know. But that's not a good reason. And I, I agree, and I, I think it's refreshing that we have someone like you who's willing to go say to the sheriff, is there a real good reason? Can't we revisit this issue? You know, this or anything else, for that matter. Um, is, are these the kind of things you talk about at the Criminal Defense Lawyers Bar Association yeah. meetings? I mean, what, what do you do when you get together besides eat Chinese food? <laughs> It's Broadway food hall, so there's many different choices. (laughs) Thank you. Sorry. Thank you to Matt Cho for creating a restaurant that has five restaurants inside of it in downtown Urbana. Um, We talk about anything that's on our mind. Sometimes someone will bring up something totally unrelated to the practice of law, something political or something to have to do with Mm -hmm. travel or uh, favorite miniseries on HBO. The main thrust of our conversations, though, is usually what we're dealing with every day. It is a forum to gripe. Mm-hmm. It's a forum to talk tradecraft, uh, scuttlebutt at the courthouse, what's going on, mm-hmm. who's getting moved around, what prosecutors mm-hmm. have which tendencies. Uh, one of the main benefits of this is the subversive lawyers lunch that's your affectionate name sure yeah uh i think that name came from justice steigman before my time we're talking uh, about appellate court justice robert steigman whose office is in uh downtown urbana former prosecutor former county judge former employer of me as a law clerk well talk about that too what did you do for him I was a judicial law clerk for him. Which means? And I was, uh, I helped him uh, take care of the two office cats, <laughs> which I was happy to do. A judicial law clerk is a uh, researcher and writer for a judge. The judge and, and a the 4th District Appellate Court, and in basically any appellate court, the judge gets cases. He's assigned to a panel, three lawyers to a case. The briefs come in from the parties who are appealing a decision from a trial court. Those briefs 
at least in, in Judge Steigman's office, first go to Judge Steigman. He looks them over, considers the arguments. Sometimes it's straightforward enough to where he can go to his clerk and say, the parties agree on these issues and the law is clear X, Y, Z. Sometimes he says, uh, there's a little bit of confusion or disagreement on this issue. Look into it. Get back to me. Maybe, uh, you know, I'm leaning this way, but I'm not totally sure. Do some research and we'll, we'll reconvene and talk about it and work through the issues. Sometimes, and I, I think he'd be okay with me saying this, sometimes we'll say, these briefs are not well written. It doesn't really give a clear answer. <laughs> you you figure out everything you can, and we'll talk about it and go from there. Give some direction. <laughs> and maybe figure out what the attorneys were unable to figure out and get back to me, and, and we'll talk about it. Uh-huh. And then ultimately the, it, the the clerk begins writing or starts adding to something that the judge has written. Ultimately, it turns into a, a written opinion or a written order that the other two judges sign off on or maybe don't sign off on. How long did you do that? I was a clerk in Springfield, a, a research attorney, mm-hmm. kind of a if, uh, for the whole court, for all the judges for uh, six or eight months. And then I worked for Judge Steigman for a year and a half. And did you Maybe find that was good preparation for be- transitioning into practice and actually going into the courtroom and having to stand up and and in, uh, do the work that you were scrutinizing on the back may, end? It prepared me really well for certain aspects of the job. Mm-hmm. There's no nothing you can do at a desk that will prepare you for giving an opening statements to a jury <laughs> or arguing a hearing in front of a judge. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do in a, as a judge's clerk that will prepare you for uh, communicating with clients about their cases or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, making decision, strategic decisions necessarily about how a specific case should go. But it, it, did, it did foster my inner law nerd, and I'm, I'm proud to say that I remain a total law geek in Good. the words of Justice Steigman, and it's helped me kind of love the law and love the f- the uh, the search for the right legal answer. Mm-hmm. And it's I would never uh, I would never take back that clerkship. And all things considered, it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Well, way to foster job satisfaction, and I, I'd like to think too that it makes you a better, um, better lawyer when it comes to dealing with your clients. I mean, you know, you know how much handholding is involved in dealing with somebody who's paying you great sums of money to determine their future. I prefer to think of it as <laughs> crisis management. There you go. There, there are different approaches that defense lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, take when when they get a case, I don't look at my role as simply showing up in court, filing the necessary motions and saying the necessary things to the judge. That's Mm -hmm. all very important, perhaps the most important part. But most people who come to me are dealing with a situation that's the worst thing that's either ever happened in their life or certainly the worst thing that's currently happening in their life. Mm -hmm. And it's not a headache simply because they have to go to court. It's a headache 
for many reasons, all-encompassing. And so part of what we do at our firm is try to help people manage the crisis and get through the daily aspects of it. And do you sleep well at night? Yes, <laughs> I do. That's good. Yeah. That's important. I know uh, I find myself, you know, watching these cases. You know it's a bad day for that person if I'm there watching because it's a case that's caught the public attention. But um, I find myself getting all worked up, and then I have to try and calm myself down calm myself down saying I don't have any skin in this game you know it really makes no difference to me if this person is acquitted or convicted or the case is dismissed it's just I'm there to tell all sides of the story so anyway anything else you want to add about your work as a criminal defense attorney I'll just say it it does make a difference to me obviously whether the person (laughs) is acquitted or or found guilty and uh, I love what I do I would not choose a different job no matter what the circumstances were. This is this is my calling and I think that the people that I work with are as important to me as as anything else in this world. You know, they are they are exactly what I want to dedicate my time to in helping them out. Okay. Well, thank you. It's uh, been fun talking to you. And uh, if anybody needs a good criminal defense attorney, Bruno's are in the phone book. Thank you, Evan Bruno, for being my guest. We might not be in the phone book, actually. That's old school. <laughs> but Yikes. Yeah. I should have gotten into that part. But at any rate, thank you for uh, the contribution you're making to the bar in Champaign County. Thank you, Mary.